T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Baseball is back. And so is MLB.tv. Watch every out-of-market, regular season game on your favorite streaming devices. Anywhere, anytime, all season long. Follow the action live or on demand. Track four games at once with multi-view mode. And catch up with in-game highlights. Plus, original programs, minor league broadcasts, and local pre- and post-game shows. Go to MLB.tv to start your free trial today. Blackout and other restrictions apply. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission. So one of the things we know about conflict is that everyone doesn't leave a country at the same time. The humanitarian crisis in Ukraine is growing by the day. People have been forced to flee their homes and prompting warnings that this could become the world's next refugee crisis. First of all, a conflict, as we've all seen the maps, are in different parts of the country. And so those people who are impacted in that setting have to make personal decisions about when's the right time to leave. Residents in war-torn Ukraine are on the run. At least, some of them are. Over three million refugees have fled from Ukraine to surrounding countries since February 24th. Seven million people are expected to cross its western border overall, with an estimated 150,000 people crossing the border of Poland every single day. But while the number of refugees fleeing might be unprecedented, and the largest exodus of its kind from Europe in decades, it's not unusual to see thousands of people in desperate attempts to leave their countries. Whether it's due to political unrest or famine caused by climate change, people from countries like Syria, Yemen, and Haiti have all attempted to seek refuge elsewhere. But not everyone has been welcomed with open arms, and not everyone has equal access to exit or the same mobility. So who gets to leave? Who gets left behind? And what challenges are refugees and asylum seekers facing once they get to their destinations? On this episode of Connect the Dots, we hear from Dr. Colleen Kivlahan, medical director of the University of California, San Francisco's Human Rights Asylum Clinic, and chair of the UCSF Health and Human Rights Initiative. I'm KCBS Radio's Mallory Somera, and this is Connect the Dots from Odyssey. This week, we take a look at the short and long-term impacts on people in the midst of war and conflict. By train, plane, cars, and on foot, Ukrainians and its country's residents continue to flee, some opponents of the war even coming from Russia to seek asylum. So far, the majority of refugees who have fled have made their way to neighboring countries such as Poland and Hungary. But not everyone has the means to pack up their things and just go. 
I caught up with UCSF's Dr. Colleen Kivlahan to get a better idea of how age, status, race, and mobility all play into war-driven diaspora. What we know is that those are personal decisions about when to go. Generally, when the bombing hits, the people who can leave, leave. And when we think about that for all of us, it's the people with cars and the people who can jump onto trains because they have the money to give that. And they have the physical capability to do it. They can get up into there. They're not in wheelchairs or they're not 90 years old with two cats and a dog that they've had their whole life that they don't want to leave. So these decisions are deeply personal about when people leave. And this is true in any conflict in the world. But generally, the rule is the people who can leave, leave early. And the people who can't leave are stuck when then the bombs come and the fighting happens in their community. I suppose that's not really something that I had thought about before is this mobility issue. I mean, we saw it when the pandemic started or, you know, we see it when there are wildfires here all along the West Coast. Um, You know, how people have less access to those devices, those vehicles, um, and, you know, sometimes they get left behind. It's a really critical equity issue, Mallory. Um, when we think about what happens in climate change and people are able to leave or in conflict when people are able to leave or in a famine, for example, who can leave are, as I said, people who have cars, people who have money to buy their way out, people who have the ability and frankly, the documents. Many people don't have passports in the United States as well as any place else. And so being able to get across that border, even in Europe, where there are no requirements if you are a European citizen to cross. For those people, and we've already seen this in the news, who are African students, for example, or Middle Eastern students can't get across because they don't have the documents. So the very first wave, as we've talked about, frankly, are higher socioeconomic status populations who can get over quickest and uh, early in a conflict. And that creates a fundamental inequity in who's remaining in the country. And so you're saying, then that the numbers that are being reflected right now has to do with that status? Absolutely. And all you have to do is look at the pictures. It's families and moms and kids who are being brought there, usually by a father or a grandfather who are going to serve in the military, but they're moving them to safety early on. They know things that the rest of the population don't know. Because the internet is down, etc., the ability to even know whether someone's on the way to your community is limited uh, in terms of uh, combatants. And for international students living and working throughout Ukraine, from the large city of Kyiv to the smaller region of Sumy, where more than 1,700 international students from places such as India, Pakistan, and Morocco are enrolled at Sumy State, Leaving Ukraine can be even trickier. Some have been able to flee, but many don't have the resources to drive to the Polish border, which is 500 miles away from the university. And students have had trouble finding clean drinking water or food, or have had to keep their lights off in order to deter Russian forces from attacking the region. Yeah, I saw a brief in the last few days by attorneys internationally about stateless people, people who 
were there because they were seeking refuge in Ukraine at this time that this happened, whether they're students or workers in that economy. So people who are stateless, who actually have no documentation at all for either country, are really struggling at the moment. And there are groups of international lawyers who are trying to work on some relief for those populations as we speak. And so I think that is true, true and related. It is happening. I would I would predict that it is happening and it will happen more and it will be very difficult for them to leave. My hope is that international um, NGOs will be able to um, embed those folks into settings near the border where they're safer. And while even though they may not get across at, in the short run, they will get across in the long run. In, in my experience, in other countries, folks are not turned back forever in that kind of setting. They're turned back during this acute, horrible phase where frankly, there aren't really clear rules about who can move where. And then things are settled over a period of time. On the other hand, that doesn't mean that there isn't extraordinary discrimination during this time of conflict and that rules can be made just to discriminate against people that no one wants in their country. And this is common in every conflict zone I've ever been in. And that can be by gender, it can be by age, it can be by race, by religion, by height, uh, by the way you look, by the color of the, your darkness, all sorts of ways that we can find to discriminate using uh, rules like COVID or rules like citizenship or statelessness as ways to discriminate. A lot of the discourse around most wars, especially this one, seems to focus on who's leaving and where they're going, but we don't often get to hear about who's left behind. Most enlistment age men have been banned from leaving Ukraine, but they haven't necessarily been forced to fight. So Ukraine is in a really unique position in my standpoint, and that is because of Zelensky's decision to keep men of fighting age, 18 to 60, in the country, it is primarily women and children. And generally, we don't actually see that as a first step out of the country. It is families. In many cases, it's men, actually, because they have access to cars and money leave countries first, especially the leadership or people um, who are leaving and escaping the military frequently leave first. And then it's families who have money. And then it's men who are working age, which are not is not happening in Ukraine. And then it's mothers and children. And so frequently in other conflicts in the world right now, we see the mother and children, the mothers and children at biggest risk long-term in a conflict setting because they're left behind. Um, in this setting, what we're seeing is people who don't have the means, so lower socioeconomic status folks who don't have the means to buy the train ticket or have a car. And then we're also seeing people with disabilities and older folks. As you saw in many of the pictures in the last few days and your listeners saw people being taken across broken bridges with rivers rushing towards them in wheelchairs by people who didn't even know them trying to get them across. And that's what we see in every country, actually, as people are trying to leave. And I tell people that if you can't imagine it, just know that there is nothing you would do to not get your kids out, 
and not get people you love out. You would push beyond people. You would take their food. You would wade across that river before them to get out. And that is a very common, normal human response. Humanitarian crisis in Ukraine has put the spotlight on alleged racism. The concern, immigrants from Africa and other people of color who've called Ukraine home. Now, as millions flee the war-torn nation, there are accusations of discrimination towards these refugees. Mostly, they would, they would consider white people first. White people first, Indian people, Arabic people before black people. We, we went to the, to the train station and they will, they will not let us in. So the most important thing about legal status is this, and that is what we know about people who cross countries because of conflict or migration um, do terribly if they don't get legal status soon, quickly. Like generally the data suggests that about 12 months, if there's no status, and they are continually in ambiguous limbo situation of no legal status. They don't learn English well, they can't get a job, they can't get healthcare, they count on their children to interpret for them. And it becomes a lost generation of workers to our country. And so early and effective policy around legal status is critical to that population and it's critical to the countries receiving them so that people can function again after this level of trauma that occurred, that they can get systematic mental health and they have the other things necessary to get back on their feet again. Those same people having trouble escaping war in Ukraine are actually the same people who have had to leave their countries of origin for some of the same reasons. But not everyone seeking a peaceful life away from what they know as home is welcomed with open arms in the same way Ukrainians have been. Harris is continuing her first foreign trip since taking office, a tour that included a stern warning to would-be illegal migrants. Do not come. Do not come. The president vowed there would be consequences for the border patrol agents seen on horseback pushing migrants into the Rio Grande. The Department of Homeland Security is now investigating this incident where Border Patrol agents on horseback are seen intimidating Haitian migrants at the southern border. How the world treats Ukraine should be, and Ukrainian refugees, should be how we are treating all refugees in the United States. I mean, especially when you look at such stark just, juxtapositions when, where so many... Have you... What are some of the differences that you found between perhaps, you know those people coming from those European countries and those who are fleeing, say, from the Middle East or from South America? Um, again, another great question. So what we think about is the what we call the constellation of trauma. So let's imagine for a minute that we have somebody from Ukraine who's you know, been an IT software developer or run their own shop. They, other than the prior wars with Russia, overall had a pretty reasonable life and haven't been subject to personal trauma on dec decade after decade. And that is not true in sub-Saharan Africa, in many parts of Saharan Africa, in the Middle East, in South America or in Central America, where people have decades of trauma so we know that child abuse is more common in some areas. We then also know that 
adolescent pregnancy, for example, and interpersonal and domestic violence is also a series of events that can occur in the populations we see for decades. People present with two or three decades of trauma and conflict, not a single conflict as we're seeing right now. And that changes the prevalence of depression and post-traumatic stress disorder and their ability to adapt to new environments is very different. It's traumatic for everyone to leave home, but it's much more traumatic when you've had decades of trauma. We were talking about who is leaving and who is staying. I imagine that impacts the diaspora over time, right? And, you know, who ends up where, why, what it does to a culture, a legacy in a place, right? Yeah, so a country like Rwanda, actually in Congo and many other many other places, Syria, um, the doctors left, the teachers left, the psychologists and the psychiatrists left. So here we are in conflict and there literally are, you know, one per two or three million people left who have mental health skills to make a difference. So when that happens, when there's that early movement out of professional populations who have money and ability to do this work, what's left is there is no infrastructure. So the hospitals have been bombed, the schools have been bombed, which is the systematic thing we're seeing in Ukraine right now, actually, right? So it's not just random apartments, it's systematically destroying journalists, systematically destroying um, airports and hospitals and ambulances, all of those things happen. And so then there's no structure left. And in the Rwanda case, it's an international example for the government making a decision that we're going to grow back and we're going to continue to put the pressure on international groups to stay involved and build this infrastructure back. And it's been a dramatic success for the most part. But in many countries, there is not that international commitment. Once the conflict is over, all of the NGOs leave, the international community goes on to the next crisis of the day, and we don't support those countries to rebuild. And I think that's going to be a very interesting thing to watch for Ukraine. My hope is that we will commit to rebuilding there. But if we do it there, we need to think hard about why we're not doing it in other countries. So the diaspora, um, the, the people who are left in that country after a severe conflict, especially conflicts like Congo, which have gone on for 30 and 40 years, it's very difficult to rebuild a country with who's left in that setting without significant international commitment to doing that. What makes for a good place to seek refuge? You know, I know there's proximity and policy and things like that, but what is it that people are looking for in a new place to call home? Home. They're looking to go home. In my 32 years of doing asylum and refugee work, I have never met anyone who said, I want to stay in the United States forever or in Poland. They want to go home. And if there's any possibility at any time in their life, the majority of them, as long as they're safe, would rather be home. So that's a first thing to remember, is that just like all of us who would never want to leave home, none of them do either. This is not a choice. 
on the on the part of most people who leave their home to go home. It's done because they have no other no other option to be safe. So what we know when people get across the border is that if they can't go home, they need stability. They need to not be in a camp for the next 10 years until their apartment gets rebuilt. They need to be in real homes where they can reunite with their families. They need to be able to, if they need it, they need to be able to get language support so they can speak the language and go buy food and go buy gasoline for a car and go get continuing education or get a job. And most significantly, what we know is that even minimal mental health support to be able to talk about and process what occurred to those people in the eight days they were living under their house, petrified with every noise and watching their children be petrified, being able to have the mental health support to begin to make meaning of that trauma, to make meaning and integrate it into the rest of their lives, then the nightmares stop over time. And the nightmare that is their life can be put into context. So then what do you think the future might look like for Ukraine and the people from there? Um, I find it very emotional to talk about the future of countries in this setting because it's so unpredictable. So if we as a world commit to staying with that country for rebuilding, think about all the pictures you've seen just in the last few days of streets blown up. Who's going to repave the streets unless everybody comes back and picks up their old roles? That's not going to happen. So I think that in Ukraine's um, position, if Zelensky continues to live and be the president, which I sincerely hope will be the case, there will be a lot of pressure he will place and the Ukrainians will place on, we appreciate your military support and the guns, but now we'd like the infrastructure rebuilding of basic things to be able to get people back to work. Um, so that's one potential possibility is that that occurs. The other possibility that I've done a lot of reading about is if in fact the majority of the country is destroyed and most people have to leave the country, that um, Russia could literally give what's left of that country back to uh, Western Europe. And that will take what we know in Bosnia and other places. It takes generations, two or three generations to build countries back to where they were before. Thanks so much to UCSF's Dr. Colleen Kivlahan for her time and insight this week. For next week's episode, Connect the Dots producer Sydney Fishman is going to be interviewing Lorraine Ali. Uh, she's a Los Angeles Times writer and television critic whose family is from Iraq and has personal experiences with the war. They'll explore the inequities in the coverage of warfare including the stark contrast in how the media responds to Ukrainian refugees versus refugees escaping non-European countries. They'll also explore the language used by journalists who are covering warfare in the Middle East and how it can negatively impact Middle Eastern and Arab communities. This episode of Connect the Dots was written and produced by Odyssey's Lauren Berry, KCBS Radio's Sydney Fishman, and myself. 
with editing, mixing, and mastering also done by me, who was also the executive producer. Subscribe to Connect the Dots and listen to past episodes by heading to the Odyssey app or Apple and Google Podcasts. From KCBS Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mallory Samara. Thanks for listening. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, oh, oh.